Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. When it comes to someone else's underwriting, there's often a lot more than meets the eye. So buyer beware. There's often any number of items that get left out in a broker or seller's P&Ls. That's where years of experience comes into play. Today's guest, Mark Hamilton, founder of Bay Area-based Hamilton Zans, shares invaluable lessons from a 30-plus year operator of over 20,000 units. So, Mark, all fun aside, you are, I would think you have certainly a perspective on this, but you are in rarefied air in terms of uh, your growing portfolio in, in of, of 20,000-ish units. And when I say that, it's amazing how many starting out syndicators there are that are springing up like mushrooms all yes. over the country. You notice that. Yes. How does that impact what you do? That's a great question. And the truth of the matter is not much. And I've, I've been in touch with three or four start, you know, uh, upstarts. Uh, one of them is, is a little farther along than the other, um, and the others, the, there's a fellow in, uh, Arizona who's probably getting close to maybe having, I'm going to say a thousand units, uh, in his portfolio. And then there's another few guys who run together who are, who are really just doing their first project in Texas. And there's another fellow uh, in Florida, who when when he and I talked, he was he was doing a seventy unit project, and so the size of their uh, yeah, the you know the target size for them uh, is very different than, for, than than it is for us, and they're to some extent going further down uh, the food chain than we are in terms of the demographics. So, I mean, I'm just happy to talk to people and give them encouragement and, and you know tell them a little bit about my path, but it is proof that there is really um, strong demand for multifamily investments. And it, it, it's coming from, you know, just what I would refer to as rank and file investors who are uh, connecting with, with people in their communities uh, and people they know to get into the game. So, you know, it definitely shows uh, appetite and demand. And I'm just happy to, to talk to folks if, if they really think I can help them. So Mark, what advice would you give these guys starting out, I guess, from your perspective? Well, really two things. You got to keep, you know, you got to keep the roof over your head. And Laurie and I scrambled to keep the lights on when 30 years ago, when we were still young in this business, Laurie, whom you know, uh, my wife, she and I kind of, kind of grew up together in the business. I went on the investment project side and she went on the management side. And, uh, you know, it's really scary as, as anyone can imagine when there's no income and the income spigot dries up and you've got, you know, you've got two young kids. So, uh, you, you got to avoid that. And I think that, uh, one of the three guys, the, the fellow who's probably furthest along has figured out how to create some cash flow from his portfolio, not only for his investors, but for himself. And, uh, my memory is that, uh, the other guys, there's a threesome of three partners and then one guy who's, who's doing it on his own. Uh, I, the, the threesome, they all have day jobs and their spouses work. So that's, that's helpful for them. And then the fellow who's doing it on his own, I think his spouse has a good job. And, you know, rule number one is you got to pay the bills. I mean, it's great to have aspirations and, and, you know, to, to, to see, uh, to see gold in them, our hills, uh, in the apartment world. But, but if you can't keep the lights on, you're not going to go anywhere. 
And so then you have to counterbalance that, right? You have to, you have to still be choosy about the things you're looking at. And, you know, one piece of advice I've, I've given to them is you have to be willing to be your own uh, worst enemy uh, with your underwriting. Because if you're not, if you're not just brutal and, and throw lots of cold water on your underwriting, you know, you can get into things uh, that don't cash flow. And I mean, you know, you certainly know uh, what the experience is for investors with, with our shop. And, you know, we, we probably, we probably do, we probably acquire 2% of what we look at, maybe less than that. And the other stuff just doesn't pencil. And so even, you know, even if you're doing your dead level best and really grinding on the underwriting, on, on the underwriting, it's, it's, it's not impossible that you're going to, that you're going to have some periods of underperformance. Um, and again, you know, nobody likes that. What, what would you say are the most common mistakes uh, a newer guy to the process makes on underwriting? Lack of appreciation of expenses. It's, it's very easy to get uh, expenses from, from a broker or even, you know, even directly from a seller. And, and even if they're providing you actual reports, you have to interpret it. You have to work with the data that you're given. You can't just, you can't just type it into a, a spreadsheet and, and push return and have it spit out what you could do. But I mean, it's really an income game. You know, once in a while you can buy something by the pound and you can just see it's priced wrong. And you know, you're going to be spending a lot of money and doing a lot of heavy lifting and it's really an appreciation strategy. But to the extent that it's more of an operating strategy, which I think almost everything these days is, you just have to be really careful about your income and expense projections. So fascinating. You said, even when you get the actual reports, and I'm going to paraphrase, this isn't exactly what you said, but effectively you need to unravel those to even got to look at kind of the layers to look at what, what they're really saying. That's not for word for word, but what, what would be an example or two of that? Cause that's interesting. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you can, you can it just to an extent, it depends on how many years of profit and loss statements uh, you want to get from people, but Ordinarily in due diligence, you want to go through the P&Ls. You want to see what there's been in terms of below the line spending, in terms of money that um, that got invested but wasn't treated as an expense. But nevertheless, it was, um, you know, it was money spent. That would typically be capex. But you could you can also have all kinds of other below the line spending of you know one time charges. If you if you had a, if you had a situation where for, for example, if you had a situation where you had a small building and nobody lived in it and it was full of squatters, right? You're still going to have to spend money to, to get the squatters out, right? You're going you're gonna to do a certain amount of legal work and God knows what else. And that would be a one-time charge. And so that might not be, that might not be on an expense. That might be below the line. Um, but you also want to get a cap. You want to get a capital uh, expenditure summary from uh, the current owner. And then you have to look at, at, at perhaps where they've, overspent, which is, which happens. It's not typical, but it does happen. And you have to look where they've underspent. And, you know, if they're telling you that you can, that you can get, uh, that you can run your staff on your property, you know, for $400 a month for, for payroll. And you just know for a fact that it's going to cost you $12,000 a year. That would be one example. The other thing is, is it's very common for, um, broker underwriting to, to give short shrift to true market-based management costs. And then you also have to build in things like third-party accounting. You, you may have to build in some legal if you anticipate that you may have to do um, some, some uh, evictions. And 
A PNL may not show you all that, uh, especially depending on its length. So your, your underwriting is going to be better if you have an experience base or a knowledge base of your own uh, going into a transaction. Because I, I would say that a, that a typical PNL uh, you would get from a seller or a broker is probably going to show 90 to 95% of your expense line items. Uh, there will be some line items that I think, you know, would just get missed depending on operator ideology. And any number of the line items might not, might not pass muster with your own sense of what those costs are going to be. So, yeah. So in other words, a lot of them you wouldn't even agree with. And then five of them might not even exist in the P&L, but they're lurking underneath the surface for the, um, for the yeah. uh, lucky new acquirer of the property. Yeah. You know, when you do have properties that are owned and operated by, I'm, I'm going to say mom and pops, right? People who, and I don't say that dismissively, people who do their own management and they might do that. They might be in the management office every day. They might be out there with the John Deere mowing the lawns, right? And so, you know, you might not even see it on a PL. But you you have to get your head around what it's going to take for for you as an operator to operate that asset, which be different if it's not in your backyard, right? If it's if it's if it's in a different region, then you again that requires a different perspective. But uh, real estate, for all intents and purposes, is a local business. Your costs are going to be sustained locally. Your you know, your vendors are all going to be local. The property taxes are going to be local. But, you know, property taxes is another example of depending on the state that you're in, you might have wild year to year movement in your uh, property taxes. That's been the case for much of the last 10 years in Texas, although they may have finally, finally grounded that. We want to see. Uh, but, but taxes were a runaway, uh, growth in taxes were a runaway freight train in, in Texas for a number of years. And, you know, another thing that uh, another part of the business where we're seeing uh, massive shifts in costs is insurance. And so, you know, you really just have to be willing to look at it as a glass that's half full at best and then ask yourself how you're going to stabilize that and then how you're going to fill the glass. Would you I know you've you've uh, picked up stakes, I believe, out of Texas. And what's so interesting and I, I, I'm sure it's interesting to you. You know, how many people are like doing deals in Dallas and Austin? Those are just like these horrid markets. A lot of new operators are doing deals. How do you view it? You, you look at it with a jaundiced eye and just going, hmm, not w- w- would you ever go back into Texas? Yes. I mean, Texas has got, you know, we bought our first property in Texas, I think in 2006. And generally speaking, we've done we've done well. I, I think in some cases we've been uh, rewarded by uh, cap rate compression. You know, if you buy it at a six and the cap rate drops to four, you've made a lot of money. And certainly, uh, the extreme demand uh, that's taken place uh, market wide, uh, but certainly in Texas over the last couple of years has has created more value out of a fixed amount of income. So, you know, we've, we've, we've definitely done okay there. We've been able to grow income, but we've also benefited from, from cap rate compression, you know, people paying more for $1 uh, of income. But uh, we would, we, we would want to see uh, the picture with movement and property taxes stabilized. Uh, they passed legislation, I want to say in 2019, that had the, the appearance of perhaps capping growth at 3% a year. We had seen 8, 7, and 8, 9% year on year on year. And that just kills you. That kills your PL. Uh, so we would want to see that. We would want to see at least moderation in the rate of growth for insurance. Texas gets, gets, uh, gets hurricanes closer to the coast. They get 
tornadoes, windstorms, and hail in the center of the state. And then they had that, that devastating freeze this year. And so, you know, one thing the insurance companies don't like is variation in exposure. And they'll, you know, they'll penalize you if, if they can't get their head around it. But otherwise, with those two things said, if we saw something, we saw an opportunity to do a, to do a true heavy lift on a project in, uh, you know, at least a B-plus neighborhood in Dallas or Fort Worth or San Antonio or, or Austin, uh, maybe even Houston, that, that, we could, that we could tell that the property had just been neglected and kind of let, you know, left to seed. Uh, and we could come in and spend ten to $15,000 a unit and, and really get rewarded over a period of two to three years, we'd, we'd certainly take a hard run at that. But those those things are so few and so far between, and the market is so overheated that I don't really anticipate we would we would see those kind of opportunities. But you know, we we'd go for we'd go for a heavy lift. We know how to do that. And you know, if we saw a property that was you know kind of a cream puff, five years old or newer, where we thought we could just tighten things up a little bit and aspire to have some income growth and you know, relative flatness and expense growth. Uh, we'd look at that. Uh, but again, the market is so overheated and, and a lot of investors, uh, I'll just give you Austin as an example. Austin is everybody's darling right now. And it's because there's just so much tech going there, right? And and I don't know that the movement of tech to, to Austin is going gonna, is gonna to abate anytime soon. People are starting to talk about it as if it's the new Silicon Valley. But, you know, people who, who just want to make good investments for their own purposes, you know, it's easy to go to a place like like Austin and buy something nice and know you're just going to write it out. Um, but we have the burden of being convinced um, that we can move the needle, that we can do more for for uh, a sophisticated investor than they might be able to do on their own. So so we have to see daylight. And, and the pricing there is so full right now that it's it's hard to buy. Yes, very funny. Um, it, that's kind of like what the, the Bay Area has been forever. And, you know, and... Yep. People yep. have been rewarded because it's, it, you know, historically, and who I'm not here to predict the future, but historically, it's always then keep keeps, you know, see, so you make no money on the front end and then it, but it keeps going up and up and eventually you have your day in the sunshine. But I, I hear, hear what you're saying. Yeah. It's a complete appreciation game in the Bay Area and has been. And that's, you know, we were you know, from 1985 to probably 2004, we were Bay Area only. And it just got to a point where we could see that if we were going to continue to invest, we were going to be betting completely on the come um, and telling our friends and family and investors, you know, don't worry, it'll go up by 10% next year and 10% the year after that. And that's that's hard, right? That's a, that's a hard uh, strategy. And so we decided to diversify into other markets and really make it out on the income game uh, and the income side of it in these opportunities was easier to underwrite by buying a, you know, an older 80 year old building in, in San Francisco. Uh, you know, that's another thing that'll, that'll, that'll bite you on the leg. If you're buying an older property is it's really hard to quantify uh, long-term maintenance and repair because you'll have so many, have so many old systems. You know, you do have one thing in Austin that you don't get in San Francisco and it makes it even a little trickier. And that is that Texas is a developer state and it's, it's never hard. There are no real impediments uh, to stop developers from developing. And so, you know, you have the pressure coming up uh, from growth in taxes and, and insurance rates that, that hurts your P&L. And then you have new development happening all the time, which kind of capitates where your rent can go because the developers, you know, offer sweeteners and concessions to, to get their property full, and then they sell them and move on. So, you know, to make money in Texas, you have to be satisfied that you can 
that you have a line of sight to expense growth and that the development pipelines are thinned out. I thought that Austin, and I don't understand regulations like you do, which is an understatement, but I thought that Austin in particular had city legislation, for lack of a better term, that made it harder to build than per se, you know, a Dallas or a Houston. I would say that that could be true in the urban core. You know, Austin has sprawled a lot in the last 15 years. And, uh, you know, a lot of these developers are big ticket developers. Well, they'll come in and create a whole new neighborhood, you know, with amenities and everything. And, you know, that kind of stuff sells well. And, uh, and it allows the community fathers and the state fathers and mothers uh, to talk about job growth. Um, but Texas is, is very... Uh, is very pro-development. And I would expect that the only real capitation on the development pipeline is going to be some restrictions or, or, or challenges that you would get for developing in the urban core. And then it's all just about finding sites. You know, finding infill sites is not going to be easy either. Interesting. How, how, like in terms of what you guys are looking to do in terms of mission, strategy, whatever, whatever uh, other uh, cliche terms you would apply here, but over the next three, five years, what have you, how do you see the world for Hamilton Zans compared to how you would have viewed it five or 10 years ago, just on a macro scale? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I think we'll continue to evolve our strategies uh, incrementally. And I can say a little bit more about that. And I think that investment plans will uh, be shaped uh, for longer term holds rather than uh, shorter duration. In the, the early 2000s, we, uh, between 2001 and, and 2006 or seven, uh, average duration from a ho- for, a, for holding a property was around 42 months. And, you know, by five years ago, average duration was probably five and a half to six years. And, and now average duration is probably more like six, eh, six to six and a half years. And, you know, if you really only looked at the stuff that we've acquired in the last 10 years, the duration on that, you know, could be eight or nine years. So, you know, there are going to be longer duration holds. Uh, we anticipate that. We will certainly working on bigger projects than, than we did five or 10 years ago. And, you know, we're really working on the organization at this point. We're, we're working on making sure that the organization is built for, for a very long and healthy uh, life cycle and, and that we're going to be able to, to keep our leaders. You know, we have a, we have a terrific group of, because you and I are, I guess we decided we're senior citizens. You know, we're lucky we have a great group of, of really terrific young people. We have quite a few people in their 20s and plenty in the 30s. And then we have a smaller group in their 40s. And I don't think we have anybody that's 50 years old. And I am now the second oldest person in the office. So it's, you know, a lot of the focus for us is, is about longevity. Whereas five years ago, we were just looking for deals. So when you say longer, the length of the holds will be longer. Uh, why is that? Well, a lot of it is because of saturation in the market, saturation of capital in the market. You know, from from over the last forty years, the interest rates have 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 gone down. It's probably the single the single most prominent aspect of uh, the last forty years of of investment and capital life in the United States, and I would say even more so than uh, the development of the internet. Uh, because the cost of capital has just gone down every year. And as the cost of capital goes down, it means values of the properties have gone up. 
And so if, um, you know, if you bought something, if you bought something 20 years ago uh, at a 7% return and the values and the market appetite eventually got to a point where the market was willing to buy it at a 5% return, you made a lot of money. And that kind of cap rate compression, I, I think, is unlikely to happen um, from here. Um, so it becomes more of an income game. You know, we're, we're, we're good at driving property level income and taking care of the, the properties and the, the residents and the staff. But I do think that value, uh, especially from where we are right now, is going to be created by, by income growth and not by cap rate compression. And so with, um, with cap rate compression really having not much of anywhere to go from here, it's, it's, it's more of a long-term growth in income and, and distribution. Uh, thesis and and you're just, again you're just not likely to you're not likely to add fifty percent to the investor's uh, investment over three to five years to to get to fifty percent it's going to take you seven to ten years you know and then you've got these people um, that will say well you know uh, you know cap rates are in, in Europe are one percent and you know a four percent cap rate is still you know, double what it is in most other parts of the developing world or the sure. developed world, I should say. Sure. Well, you know, I don't know. I really, I, I think you're spot on in terms of, you know, kind of rates of return uh, in Europe. Not that I know that much about uh, real estate there. I think a lot of people in other places just buy it to buy a piece of the rock, right? I think that a lot of New York City or Boston uh, investment, you know, or even San Francisco for that matter, you get these really low cap rates at a 3% because some are, someone's really just buying it as an income producing safe deposit box for, for their money. And so they'll, you know, they'll accept a lower yield for that. But I think mainstream uh, real estate investors really want to hear that you have a solid plan to distribute 5% or, you know, maybe if you have to start out at four, that you're going to be able to get to 5%. And it gets, you know, there are costs. There are costs of your transaction that burden the returns and there are costs of operations that burden the returns. And I just, I, I, you know, I've never really been in this business for quite a while. And I was certainly doing it in the old days when, when cap rates were at, at eight and interest rates were at 10. And that sensibility for the 5% return, a lot of conversation for a lot of people really just starts at a 5% return. I understand it. Yeah, no, and I and I wasn't suggesting for a second that lower cap rates in other parts of the world w- would ultimately result in our cap rates continuing to go south. I was just like saying it's interesting what people say or or convince themselves of. Let's say, you know, we have sold some stuff this year at a sub four cap. Uh, we sold a property in Las Vegas um, at about a three point eight cap, and uh, we're working on one in. Uh, Oregon, uh, where it looks like the landing zone will be below four. Um, those investors are obviously telling themselves and, e- and each other that they have a plan for you know moving income over a period of years to get the cap rate above above a four. So you know we're definitely seeing it. And uh, there's a a really renowned uh, real estate economist whose name is Peter Lineman, uh teaches at the Wharton School. And he's probably he's probably one of the top two or three premier uh, real estate economist. And, and he's opined that we, that we could be in a long-term mode where, where cap rate compression down to 4% is really going to stick for a while. 
Uh, we've we've always assumed that cap rates were going to move against us. You know that buyers would want higher rates of return, but it just hasn't happened yet. So uh, I think you know, to our thinking, being at a buying at a the low fours and then putting debt on it and the intermediate threes and being able to do a chin up over a five percent distribution uh, to us that feels pretty good right now, and we do believe that um, uh, the operating life for apartments in the next three to five years should be pretty good. Hmm. What kind of financing do you guys typically do? We are almost always going to be either Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. The bullseye for us is a 10-year fixed rate loan. Sometimes we go 12. Once in a while, we go 15, uh, just depending on pricing and our, our thesis for a given property. We've even gone, we've even gone 20. We've only got 20 once, but you know, the, we'll straddle 10% on our term. We'll put uh, a healthy down payment down so that our borrowing is maybe 60 to 70% of cost. And, and then right now, you know, we're getting rates and we're getting rates between three and a quarter to three and a half, uh, probably with five years of interest only, which, which also helps you uh, get your chin up over 5%. And, and it's, it's really just tailored. The, the financing strategy is tailored for intermediate to long-term holds. Is there risk, um, you know, that, you know, 10 years go by, you still have the asset, or I guess in your case, I, I guess it would be unlikely, even with a longer hold strategy. But I'll ask the question, even with a strategy of, let's say, a, a seven, eight, nine-year hold, it wouldn't apply. But just for the heck of it, is there risk, you know, that let's say you, for whatever reason, you can't dispose of the uh, property for whatever reason, nine, 10 years from now? And is, is there, you know, is there finance risk at that point in case the world goes mahula and rates are back up to like eight to 10%? hundred percent. You know, for the last 20 years, whenever someone has asked me what the two biggest risk factors are in terms of investing with an organization like ours, the, the first two are interest rate risk, right? That's, that's always going to be there because nobody could see. And, you know, there, uh, there's been a lot of stock market volatility in the last 10 days to two weeks because of concern about inflation. You know, the inflation that took place in the seventies was nightmarish for the markets. And yet, despite efforts to create inflation over the last 20 years, it, it has been a challenge to get inflation, which society needs um, and, and the government needs. But you know, notwithstanding that, that's always risk number one. Anybody ask me what the what the biggest risks are to invest in a in an illiquid asset, perhaps with a sponsor. Risk number one is is interest rates. Risk number two is the the organizational life and and likely longevity uh, of the sponsor. And you know, I know a lot of people that have that have always and and people you know uh, who've always done this on their own, right? They've been they've been independent sponsors and they and they've done just fine. You know, they're, they're sponsors that have something of an organization around them, like we do, who've done just fine. But you, you have to know that that sponsor is going to be in the game uh, for the duration of your investment. Because if, you know, if somebody goes to go sit on a mountaintop in Tibet, uh, your, your investment uh, might languish. languish. So I've, I've always felt those are the two, the, the two biggest uh, risk factors. Very interesting. This is so beneficial to to me and people like me because you know what? This is stuff that you just know in your sleep. I, hey, man, I, I I'm learning as I go. Do you guys ever? I'll tell you one of the things a lot of I think newer sponsors are doing is they do an over raise 
And then they're just, and, and I don't exactly know why. Um, and, and I know that as a result of an overraise though, there is a period of time where investors are just getting their money back. What do you think about that? I think you have to, you have to know how to look at the, the sponsors pro forma and business plan. And you want to see, uh, no matter what, you want to see that the investor, ha- uh, excuse me, that the sponsor has appropriate reserves. Now, that doesn't mean uh, stacking up a lot of $100 bills that came from the investors in a, def- in a vault so that you can give them back to, to people every month. But you, you, you have to have reserves. And in our business plan, we, we always get very detailed with the sources of funds, which are going to be primarily investor equity, including our own. And, and financing, right? And then the uses of funds. You know, what is the entire budget for how, how those funds are going to be used? In one of our models, we're going, to have, we're going to have an operating reserve of probably two to three months income. Uh, so, you know, in case you, you hit a period where suddenly there's a problem, right? That you have the stability to continue the operation. We're also going to have a, a meticulously detailed uh, reserve plan for, for the reserves that we put together for capital improvements. Um, so you want to see that you're getting a, a good source and use of how the money is going to be, how the money is going to be raised. And then you have to be able to see a, a, a pro forma that's transparent and that really squares with the operating facts on the ground. Because if there's, you know, if there's, if, if, if distributions are going to be paid from, from deficits while the property is earning a deficit, you, you need to see that in the model. That, that doesn't necessarily mean it's inappropriate, but it definitely, you, you definitely want to know where your cash flow is coming from question um and these these are just like these these um kind of softball like just rudimentary you guys distribute monthly others distribute quarterly and the way i understand it is guys that do a quarterly it's just frankly it's less burdensome from an accounting perspective is, is there a philosophy you have on that or you, you guys just do monthly because just people want a monthly check yeah you know we we've um our, our operating ideology got set a long time ago. And, you know, I have partnerships that, that, that predate Hamilton Zans. I have partnerships that I put together in 1991, 1992, and so on through the nineties. And it was just, it was just set to do, you know, we just set it, set the clock, uh, to do it that way. And, uh, you know, I have other clients back in the day, I used to do a fair amount of brokerage. And if, if you're an operator, you get your income every month, you pay your expenses every month. And then what's left you put in your checking account. So, you know, a lot of our clients were just, just set up to have that monthly expectation. And we've never, we've never felt that we needed to move away from that. So, you know, it's a little more intensive. We have probably a slightly bigger staff than, than we might carry if we were only distributing quarterly, you know, and, and some people would say that, that quarterly also might give you some smoothing out if you have some variation of, in your income uh, during a quarter. Uh, but we, we, meticulously um, budget in advance for every year and then set our sights on a distribution that we should be able to maintain uh, knowing the facts on the ground. You know, investors love a, a distribution that stays the same or, you know, preferably goes up, but not one that's shaking and rattling and rolling all over the place. And, you know, it's just much more like a coupon. Uh, whereas if you purely and simply distribute only the exact amount of money you made that month, you're going to have variation and it just makes it harder to keep track of. But so, you know, we have to budget a little more meticulously. Uh, as I mentioned, we always keep a small reserve um, on hand. And then we look to be able to 
if we're going to distribute $10 a month, we want to see that we're netting 11 so that we can sweep a little bit more. Right. And when we, and those, and those times where we have some money piled up on the side sidelines, we'll do uh, periodic uh, lump sum distributions. We've done that a lot over the last 10 years. Haven't done it in the last year, uh, but I expect that life will return to that as household formation starts up again and as the economy recovers. I see. Do you guys, I never thought to ask you this, do you guys take institutional money or have you? Oh, you bet. Probably 15% of our uh, acquisitions over the years have been uh, with institutional partners. We've done approximately uh, 220 acquisitions, and I would expect we've done 30 to 35 institutional JVs. And those are with household names. Uh, they're, with, they're with big banks. They're with, excuse me, pension fund aggregators. They're with life insurance companies. And we haven't done a lot of that lately because the institutional investor is typically going to look for a shorter duration and a higher growth rate. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, that uh, the growth rates for appreciation are, are down right now because there's, there's just so much capital in the system and it's hard to find something that you're going to be able to, to get, a, you know, get an 18 IRR on three years. The market's too efficient for that. But yeah, we do, we do a lot of that and we also work with some family offices. Got it. And do you guys, I know you've done a lot of 1031s. I guess my question is, do you ever not do 1031s and kind of what are, what, what drives that decision? That's a good question. And the answer is yes. Uh, we do 1031s on probably, well, let me back up. Uh, if we have a, if we have a deal that we've done with an institutional partner, uh, that will always be business plan specific and built for, for buying an asset, running the business plan, selling the asset and liquidating the capital. Uh, institutional partners aren't interested in the strategy of, of exchanges and, and, and going on over a very long horizon. Uh, most of what I would call our rank and file business is, is different. You know, we'll have, we'll, we'll, we'll put, uh, we'll, we'll group up investment capital from friends and family and ourselves. And very often that'll be cash, which goes into a partnership or it'll be in, uh, exchange proceeds, which an investor brings in, and then they go on title individually. And we're our own biggest investor, by the way. Whenever we sell an asset, somebody who, who took a title holding position of their own, which is frequently called the tenant common position, we sell, their funds go back into their own exchange account, and they can continue on with us, or they can go and do their own thing. They can go buy something else, they can liquidate, they can do whatever they want. In the partnership, uh, we'll tell everybody uh, what the plan is and and let everybody know where we intend to go uh, with the investment capital in terms of a replacement property and then get give everybody an option to either to either stay on or or cash out. And I would say that probably eighty five to ninety five percent of the investors in any given transaction want to continue, want they you know they want to defer the gain. They've liked having the income. They've liked seeing the growth. So I only know uh, off the top of my head in the last, I'm going to say 15 years, I can only think of uh, two partnerships where as a group, the, the investment group and, and ourselves decided to liquidate the partnerships and just return the capital. It's much more common for us to do a 1031, but nobody's a hostage. What were the circumstances in, the, in those couple instances where you did in 1031? Uh, one of them was uh, uh, a property in Fort Collins, Colorado that we bought and had re had a really good result on. And I think we had, I'm going to stick my neck out and tell you, we had three partnerships. We probably exchanged in 
from two partnerships and then also organized a new partnership. And in one of the partnerships, there was a a gentleman who had a more than ordinary amount of the partnership interest. I think he may have been 50 to 60% of the partnership. And uh, he was in the middle of a family dispute and needed to solve his family dispute. And, and, and we knew it. I mean, things were fine. He continues to be a, you know, a friend and client to, the, to this day, but he really needed to liquidate to get the money out to solve their problem. And we just didn't have, you know, we weren't going to go to the remaining 40% and tell everybody to pony up so that we could preserve the partnership. And we didn't have the ability at that time to write a check of that size. So we just liquidated that partnership and everybody got their money and made money and, and, and was happy. And then on another one, we also in Colorado, was a smaller project. Uh, we, we made money, but we didn't really make that much money. And we didn't have anything lined up, ready to go as a replacement property. So again, we, we simply liquidated it and gave the capital back and, and went on our way. And that's all I can think of and we've sold about 110 properties. And I can only think of those two partnerships where we've liquidated. Very, very interesting. You know what I see a lot of? I see a lot of these um, deals where there's two share classes. There's A and B. And I guess what's your thinking on those? And it's typically, a 10, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it's typically a 10% preferred equity and then, you know, maybe 7% common class B shares where you're you know, a 7% pref plus, you know, 30% of the upside or whatever it is. I guess, what do you think of those in general? And, and I don't think you guys do them, but what's your philosophy? Yeah, we don't. To me, that, that seems more like a financing model. I, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it seems more like a financing model than a true equity model. And, you know, our, our investors, you know, a lot of whom you know, are just straight up real estate people, people who, who made their own way and, and created some wealth. Uh, in real estate and have just decided that they just don't want to do it anymore, right? And so so a lot of their investment capital comes to us, in, including some exchange capital. And so, you know, we, we organized a very long time ago with monthly distributions, with a high, with a comparably high preferred return and with a structure that really imitated uh, direct ownership of real estate. And we've, we've just never really moved away from that. We're still doing the monthly distributions our preferred return, we finally lowered it uh, last year by a couple of hundred basis points. And it's probably still higher than, than what you would see on the market. And again, the, you know, the structures are just, it's, it's, ca- it's investment equity uh, in uh, financing obtained, uh, no preferred share classes. Everybody invests in what we call a class A share. And, and you know, our, our own investment capital is going to be a class A share. So everybody's shoulder to shoulder. Uh, I do think that there are you know, you and I have talked about this. There are there are operators who who figured out how to how to skew it hard uh, for the sake of those investors who want uh, distributable income and perhaps a more senior position, and then skew it in the other direction for for a, a constituency that may expect less cash flow and may be more interested in the appreciation. And you know, for us, it's always just right down the middle of the fairway. It's interesting because you know, just hearing you talk and just kind of sticking my uh, finger in the air to just to determine, you know, which way the wind is blowing here. I'm more inclined to, to do in those deals where they're, you know, where I'm considering participating in uh, to do class A, because I just think that the appreciation is becoming less and less reliable. And if you can get 10% and, and they limit the amount of the, the raised uh, 25%, 
uh, and, and then the common is seventy five percent. I don't know. It, it seems like it's a it, it, you know it seems like it's a, a conservative way to go. I guess in this environment, just because it seems like the appreciation is getting more and more of a question mark. To your point, as how much more can cap rates compress? So that's just an interesting dynamic. Well, you know, and and to your point, it's hard to it's hard to argue with a distribution that's being successfully made. That's that's compelling, right? Yeah. Uh, it's backed up by an asset. You may get some growth. I mean, I suppose that depends on how any individual project is structured. Uh, but it's hard to you know it's hard to argue against a, a senior position and uh, and a regular and a regular distribution. And and you're right, I. I don't see cap rates going down from here. I mean, are we really going to start talking about 3% cap rates? I, I prefer not to. We've always thought interest rates would move against us, and we've always thought uh, that cap rates would move against us. And, you know, I should congratulate us that we were wrong on both of those. I guess that the, the reason to take a position, a Class B share, is if you have confidence that the operator is going to really stick to their knitting and be really disciplined. Uh, if the assumption is that we can't really count on rent growth, yes, maybe it happens, but you know, you know, we were on a 10 year bull run prior to the, to the pandemic. So if one were to assume there's going to be a recession, which there will be, it's just a matter of when, how long it lasts, how severe it is, et cetera. But if you were to assume that, Hey, we can't bank on continued rent growth and we can't bank on continued cap rate compression, um, then it does it does kind of support a case for uh, you know a, a, oh I, I lost my train of thought senior moment back to our prior conversation before we hit record is that you'd have to have just super confidence that the operator is going to really stick to their guns and, and have an incredible amount of discipline around finding properties where there's operational efficiencies and that's the way they're going to eventually and then they're going to improve NOI and that's the way they're going to uh, create appreciation. I agree completely. And, and I would say that, you know, for the first time, I'm actually starting to think that we may see some inflation and that, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily like pie in the sky projections for, for growing income, but I do think, uh, that the next three years, as we uncoil, uh, from the, the pandemic, that household, household formation number are really move the needle. I, I saw something the other day that the cohort, uh, the age cohort between 18 and 34, 52% of those people are living with mom and dad right now. And, you know, we all love our parents, but I don't think anybody's uh, plan for their 40s is staying at home, <laughs> you know, and watching reruns of Lost in Space with mom and dad, right? So I, I think there's a big wave of household formation that's going to happen. I think it will mirror I think it will mirror to some extent what we saw between 2018 and 2012 uh, is that, you know, people will, will gradually tell their parents that they'll see them on Friday um, instead of seeing them for breakfast tomorrow. And um, so I think the household formation numbers are really going to drive that. I think if we see an infrastructure plan and see employment continue to rise, again, Lenneman, he opined that uh, pre-pandemic, we were at about three and a half percent unemployment and translated that to about uh, six million, six million people. Well, I, I watched a video of him the other day and he said that, that right now the unemployed are 18 million people. And that, that once you really dive into the unemployment numbers, it's really more, it's not, it's been reported as six and a half, but in his opinion, it was really more like 10. Those people will get back to work. 
And so, uh, you know, between, between creating jobs for people, people getting jobs and people and, and household formation numbers, I do think we're heading into a strong operating environment. So for the first time, I'd probably be a little more sanguine about using, you know, about forecasting some growth um, in rents. But I, cap, rate, cap rates can't get better from here, right? They, in my opinion, they've got to move against us. But, you know, we'll, we'll, all, we'll all see that. And then you're right, it comes down to the sponsor. And a, and a sponsor um, is putting his or her equity into the, into the B piece, which I, it's easy for me to imagine that, that that is what's happening. You know, that, that's, that could be pretty good too, because that means that they're going to, they want to get returns to the B. And the only way to get the returns to the B shareholders is to make sure the A, a shareholders make money. You got it. Mark, I have uh, exhausted my questions. And man, you are a knowledgeable guy. You've been doing this a long time. And uh, I'm going to say goodbye for the recorded part of this conversation. And we'll, we'll put something on the calendar. Uh, how about at, right after that? I'd like that. All right. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for uh, a third, a third uh, recording here, maybe another six to nine months. That'd be great. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, Roger. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. <laughs>